Welcome to the Sound Words Podcast, where our goal is to help Christians love and live out God's Word. My name is Jesse Randolph. I'm the pastor-teacher of Indian Hills Community Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. On this episode, we're going to spend some time addressing the topic of marriage. A couple weeks ago, our church put on a marriage conference, which was a great time of getting away with our spouses, worshiping the Lord, and hearing from God's Word. I had the privilege of teaching all four sessions at the conference, and the unifying theme tying together each session was that marriage is more than what the world and the culture claims it to be. But marriage is also more than what we as Christians often think it to be. Uh, by the way, each of those messages is now available on the Indian Hills website, ihcc.org, if you want to catch the full version of any one of them. But in this episode, what I'm going to do is provide you with a trimmed-down version of each of those lessons and give you four main takeaways related to the God-ordained institution of marriage. Let's jump right into it with our first takeaway, marriage is more than principles, it's a picture. I'll say it again, marriage is more than principles, it's a picture. What do I mean by that? Uh, isn't marriage governed by principles and not just any principles, but biblical principles? Uh, for instance, the principle that a husband is to live with his wife in an understanding way or the principle that a wife is to respect her husband? Well, marriage most certainly is governed by principles. Uh, there are principles all over the Old and New Testaments which factor in to how God views marriage and how he wants us to function in marriage. But overlaying each of those principles and undergirding each of those principles is a picture. Our marriages are a picture of the gospel. And specifically, our marriages are a picture of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. Our marriages picture Christ's love for us, the redeemed, the saved, the church, the one he gave himself up for, as it says in Ephesians 5.25. And our marriages picture our love in turn for Christ, as we, as Christ's bride, the church, joyfully and gratefully submit to his leadership and headship and lordship over every area of our lives. So is marriage about companionship? Yes, it is. Genesis 2.18 says it is not good for the man to be alone. Is marriage about two people becoming one flesh? It surely is. Genesis 2.24 says a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Is marriage about procreation and raising children to fear and love the Lord? It surely is. Ephesians 6.4 says we are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Is marriage supposed to bring glory to God? It is. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But marriage is centered on and should ultimately point to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have believed in the truths of the gospel, meaning you have placed your faith in what Jesus did on the cross as being the only means by which you might be spared from the wrath of God which your sins deserved, at least these things should be said about you that you were once spiritually dead, but now you're regenerated and alive, uh, that you've been reconciled to God and adopted by God, that you've been purchased and redeemed, that you've been entirely transformed and made new, that you've been rescued from the wrath of God, which otherwise would have awaited you, uh, that you are free from the shackles of sin, that you have an entirely new identity in Christ. And now, and, and here's the main idea here, you are called to picture in your marriage the message which gave you that identity. The message of Christ dying for your sin, the message of the cross, the message that saved you, that message being the gospel. Husbands are to sacrificially love their wives as Christ loved the church, and in doing so, picture the gospel. 
wives are to submit to and respect their husbands as the church does so to Christ, and in doing so, picture the gospel. All right, well, we've seen that marriage is more than principles. It's a picture. Our second major concept in this episode is that marriage is more than headship and submission. It's a welcome partnership. And the basic idea here is that when we think of biblical roles in marriage, we often go straight to that part of Ephesians 5, which gives us those commands about the biblical roles in marriage, the headship of the the husband, the submission of the wife, and so on. But if we look at the context of Ephesians 5 and what Paul was saying in the totality of his letter to the church at Ephesus, we'll quickly see that the commands he gave here do not exist in a vacuum. Rather, they are the natural outworking of the position and the status that Christian husbands and wives have in Christ. So the charge here is that before we start considering who should be doing what in marriage, let's make sure we appreciate who we and our spouses are in Christ. Using Paul's words from earlier in his letter to the Ephesians, I'm going to remind you of some of the key doctrinal pillars which support how we relate to our spouse and our respective roles in marriage. Uh, First, we need to remember how it is that we came to the Lord in the first place. As we see in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, and Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, the reason you're a Christian, the reason you're saved, if you're saved, the, the reason you have eternal life to look forward to has nothing to do with you and everything to do with God. Your salvation wasn't a a collaborative effort. You didn't meet God halfway. It wasn't half him and half you. It wasn't even mostly him and a little bit you. It was all God. And what that means, practically speaking, is that there shouldn't be an ounce of pride in how you view yourself spiritually or how you compare yourself to your spouse or how you approach your marriage and your spouse. You have to remember, you were both once hell-bound rebels but now you're both grace-bought sinners. That means there's no better or worse. There's no room for pride. There's certainly no room for I deserve better than this because what you deserve and what I deserve and what your spouse deserves is hell. So while we acknowledge, of course, that there is to be order and structure and authority in marriage, in terms of your relationship before God, you are equals. You were both chosen. You you were both predestined. You were both the recipients of his love and the kind intention of his will. And those truths ought to serve as the ultimate pride crushers in any marriage. To recognize that your position in Christ has nothing to do with you, it has nothing to do with your spouse, and it has everything to do with your Lord. Second, we need to remember the call to holiness that comes with our position in Christ. Ephesians 1.4 says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. God called us to be holy, to be set apart, to be pure. This means having thoughts that are holy and expressing thoughts that are holy and using words that are holy and checking our motivations to ensure that they're holy. And that's true of every aspect of our lives, but it's certainly true of our marriages. The Lord didn't save us so that we would go on fulfilling the various lusts and desires of our flesh. So the question is, are you striving for holiness individually and together in your marriage? Third, we can't forget the cost and the consequences of having been forgiven. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. All of us have sinned. And just one of those sins would warrant eternal separation from our creator and an eternity spent in hell. 
but through his blood, meaning through Christ's precious blood, we received forgiveness for each and every one of our sins, past, present, and future, washed as white as snow, declared as far as the east is from the west. The debt has been paid and canceled out, which means when we look at the big picture and when we look at the eternal picture, when we remember who we once were and what the Lord did for us, we truly have no grounds for being bitter or unforgiving toward our spouse. Forgiveness in marriage is not optional. It's not an elective in the Christian faith. We must forgive, just as God has forgiven us. Fourth, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we cannot lose sight of the fact that we are spiritually unified with our spouse. Though you are called to different roles and functions in your marriage, a truth which transcends your distinctions and roles is that you have spiritual unity. As Ephesians 4.3 puts it, we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is a beautiful aspect of life in Christ as a whole. As people who otherwise would have no business spending time together suddenly become bonded and unified to one another in Christ. Well, that form of spiritual unity is no more beautifully put on display between two believers than it is between a husband and a wife in marriage. And because we are spiritually unified with our spouse, we don't have to fight for our own way. We can yield to one another. We can defer to each other's preferences. We can outdo one another in showing honor, and we can do so without violating principles of headship and submission. Fifth and last, you and your spouse cannot forget that you're both dead. And by that, I simply mean what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that you are new creatures in Christ. And what he says in Ephesians 4.22, that you are to be daily laying aside the old self. Old things are gone, new things have come. And the result is that you are to die to self daily. Put off, put on. So, does a biblical marriage involve headship and submission? It sure does. But is headship and submission all that a marriage entails? No, that's not right. It's more than that. It's a welcome partnership in light of who we both are in Christ. All right. We've seen that marriage is more than principles. It's a picture. We've seen that marriage is more than headship and submission. It's a welcome partnership. Now we're going to work through our third major concept in this episode. We're going to see that marriage is more than peacekeeping. It's more than keeping the peace in our marriages and avoiding conflict. It's peacemaking. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Note that he said peacemakers, not peacekeepers. He said peacemakers. Those are much different concepts. One comes from the world, the other comes from God's word. We'll start here by addressing some of the, the conflict avoidance or, or peacekeeping strategies which the world's going to promote. And then I'll give you some biblical con conflict resolution or, or peacemaking tips. But first, here are a few ways that the world is going to tell us to resolve conflict. Uh, the first one is this. Let time heal it. I'm sure we've all heard the saying, time heals all wounds. Well, time does no such thing. In fact, time is incapable of doing any such thing. Time in its own right doesn't heal anything or do anything. Time doesn't fix anything. Time doesn't correct anything. Time doesn't change anything. In fact, the only thing time does is pass. And even if time could heal, healing isn't the ultimate objective for the Christian. Healing isn't our highest aim or our greatest good. No, conflict involves offense and often involves sin. So what is needed is not healing, 
What is needed, rather, is confession and forgiveness and repentance. The Bible contains no category for time healing a conflict. Here's the next worldly conflict resolution strategy that we need to avoid, which is to try to bury it. Uh, A related way that we might be tempted to resolve our conflict is to to bury it. Uh, We busy ourselves with our lives that we're otherwise living in the hopes that our spouse will eventually forget whatever it, it was our conflict was about. But trying to forget what happened and trying to move past whatever that other person said and trying to keep ourselves so busy that we no longer have time to think about it will only work for so long. And it'll only add to that pile of unresolved grievances and hurts and complaints in a marriage, which, as time goes on, can lead to things like anger and bitterness and jealousy. Another worldly way of resolving conflict is to act as though the conflict never happened. In other words, to pretend. But again, all the pretending in the world is not going to erase the conflict. A person who is pretending that a conflict never happened is not living in reality. They're disregarding the truth. And as Christians, as people of the truth, as ambassadors of the one who calls himself the truth, this is not acceptable behavior. Uh, This is not conduct fitting our profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Here's another worldly approach to conflict resolution that we, we cannot engage in. And that's to insist that the other person initiate the the resolution process. Uh, This would be the approach of the conqueror. Uh, This is the mindset of telling the other person that that the sooner you acknowledge this, the sooner your misery is going to end. Just just admit that you're wrong and I'm right and the conflict's going to be over. But this isn't coming anywhere near the example of humility that Christ demonstrated for us when he took the form of a servant and humbled himself. Waiting out the other person and insisting on your own way does not reflect the heart of Christ. So those are some ways we're not to engage in conflict. And and if those are the negative examples, how are we as Christian men and women supposed to resolve conflict biblically then? Uh, To not only keep the peace, but to make peace. That that is to be peacemakers. Well, I'm going to give you some preventative ways first to steer clear of conflict biblically. That is, how to not let disagreements develop into full-on conflicts. And then I'm going to give you some ways to actively resolve conflict once the conflict is already underway. So here are some of the preventative measures first. Uh, I'm going to list 10 of them. First is know your spouse. And for spouses, this is built in. 1 Peter 3.7, for instance, tells husbands that we need to live with our wives in an understanding way. So if you're listening to this or watching this and you're a husband, Do you have intimate knowledge of your wife? Or are the two of you living in totally separate worlds? You can't know someone that you don't spend time with. Having a clear perspective on where the other person is coming from before leaping to conclusions about wrong or ill motives is only going to help you in the long run toward avoiding sinful conflict. Second, gather sufficient information before speaking. In addition to knowing your spouse well, you need to know what they're actually saying. Uh, This isn't about knowing what you think they said, but knowing what they actually said. And that might mean clarifying often what you think you heard or understood your spouse to be saying. Uh, This might mean asking lots of questions. It reminds us of Proverbs 18, 13, which says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. Or Proverbs 18, 17 says, The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Third, Think and pray about the issue before speaking. The Bible has much to say about the importance of thinking before we speak. Proverbs 15.28 says, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. 
Fourth, listen more than you speak. That one is pretty self-explanatory. Proverbs 10.19 says, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. Fifth, by all means, speak. Proverbs 25.11, like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Six, search the scriptures. 2 Peter 1.19 says, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Seventh, obtain godly counsel. Proverbs 11.14 says, where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in an abundance of counselors, there is victory. Now, be careful here as it relates to number seven in the context of marriage. Make sure that you're being careful and circumspect about who you seek counsel from, but also the way that you're portraying your spouse when you seek that counsel. Eight, refuse to sin in your communication. Proverbs 8, six through eight says, listen for I will speak noble things and the opening of my lips will reveal right things for my mouth will utter truth and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. Ninth, demonstrate love even in disagreement. Romans 12, 9 and 10 says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And tenth and last, pursue God's glory and the other's good. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So those are some of the preventative measures, uh, uh, that is, biblical ways to resolve or, or, or redirect a potentially brewing conflict. But what if those means don't work? What if these preventative measures fall flat? And what if what started as a disagreement now escalates into a conflict? Well, Here would be the biblical progression for resolving that conflict. First, you have to take responsibility for your own part of the problem. Humble yourself. Admit your wrongdoing. Don't make this about his or her speck. Make this about your log. See that the problem lies first and foremost with you and that what the Lord wants for you is to be humble, humble enough to recognize that as long as the log is in your eye, you aren't in a position to evaluate specks in anyone else's lives including your spouse's. Second, you have to repent for your part of the problem. To repent means to turn, to go in the other direction. In the context of marital conflict, it means to admit that something is your fault. If you are arguing about in-laws or dinner preferences or sex or finances, it means repenting of your anger, frustration, and language toward your spouse. And it means confessing to the Lord that your desire to be right or justified or heard went beyond what the Lord would have wanted for you in that situation. Third, you have to forgive one another. Forgiveness is not optional. Forgiveness is mandated. Forgiveness is required all the time. This is at the heart of what Paul says in Colossians 3, 12 through 15, when he says, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. This doesn't mean you'll always feel like forgiving, but that ultimately doesn't matter. The Lord often asks us to do things we don't want to do or don't feel like doing, and he encourages us to do things even if we're struggling to do them. 
just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. There is no way, of course, that we can out-forgive God, but we should always be striving to out-forgive each other. Fourth, you must move forward. Philippians 3, 13 and 14 says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. A strong and godly marriage won't live in the past, haunted by its past failures and struggles. Once you've repented and been forgiven, it's time to embrace the forgiveness and it's time to move forward. The aim, again, is not to be peacekeepers in our marriages. Instead, the goal is to be peacemakers. Peace in a marriage is not marked by the absence of conflict, but instead is the result of it. And that now brings us to our fourth and final takeaway in this episode, which is that marriage is more than physical, it's spiritual. Putting it another way, marriage is more than the way that you and your spouse connect physically. It's more than the way that you and your spouse relate to each other sexually. It's about how you relate to one another spiritually. That is, assuming you have both put your faith in Jesus Christ, your main connection point is not the marriage bed. But instead, your main connection point, both individually and together as husband and wife, is to God, who you now both have access to through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, the physical side of marriage is, of course, important and it's vital, which is why in the session I taught at the marriage conference, I spent a good 30 minutes or so walking through God's design, his plans, his blueprints, and his cautions for a faithful and God-honoring sexual relationship with your spouse. But bringing it back to our theme here, marriage is more than your physical relationship with your spouse. It's about your spiritual relationship. And a few basic reminders on this topic as we wind down this episode. First is the reminder that if you are married, your chief identity is not as being Mr. or Mrs., but instead is in being a child of God. Meaning, you are a brother and sister in Christ to your spouse before you're their husband or wife. Second is the reminder that you are not ultimately a citizen of this earth, but rather your citizenship is in heaven. Everything we do here on this earth and everything we do as believers is in preparation for eternity. So remember that while you're to glorify God in your body and you're to share, not deprive your body with your spouse, one day you're going to have a new body, a resurrection body, a glorified body. But in the meantime, this whole life and, and your marriage is a dress rehearsal for eternity. So play your part well and play it faithfully. Third is the reminder that your relationship with your spouse is your most important earthly relationship. Not your relationship with your parents, your children even, or your church leaders, but your relationship with your spouse. Meaning, when we stand before Christ one day at the Bema seat, the first earthly relationship you're going to give, give an account for is this one. So what will you say to the Lord about not only the physical side of your relationship with your spouse, but how you related to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ? Will you be proud of how you ran the race under your roof? Or will you be content with just skating by and sort of stumbling your way toward the finish line? So there we have it. A quick flyover of these four important subjects. Uh, the purpose of marriage and what it pictures the biblical and theological realities which underlie our, our gender roles in marriage, uh, what biblical conflict resolution is and is not, and having a right perspective on the physical and spiritual aspects of our relationships with our spouses. It's my prayer that 
Each of our married listeners and viewers will embrace the joy and the beauty of a biblically guided and a biblically faithful marriage as you walk in a manner worthy of your calling as husband and wife. And if you're not yet married, I pray this episode has brought you some clarity on what you should be looking for and pursuing in a God-honoring marriage. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you found this episode to be helpful. As always, the final word goes to God in his word, 2 Timothy 1.13. Retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me, in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on the Sound Words Podcast.